Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we uh, thank you for another evening we have to, to gather and uh, focus in on you. Lord, I just pray that you uh, bless this next uh, little bit of time of, of Bible study as we open your word and see what you have for us. Father, uh, please speak tonight, uh, even if it has to be in spite of my words. Uh, give us ears to hear and minds to understand what you have for us. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. John 14, 15 says, this is Jesus talking to his uh, disciples and to the people. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, let's just be honest for a second. People are stupid. Okay, let's just, let's throw it out there. Let's be honest. We see evidence of this all over the place. There's warning signs literally on everything. If you... uh, and literally from everything, there's, have you seen the, um, you know, the plastic wrap that they stick poster tubes in? They're teeny tiny, right? Have you seen the warning signs? Have you actually read them? There's actually a warning on there that says, do not place overhead. Okay? This big. Okay? If you've looked at the, uh, the Pop-Tarts, right? Most people have eaten a Pop-Tart sometime in their lives. It says in the instructions on how to heat the Pop-Tart, step one, removed from package, okay? So you've got to understand that these instructions are there because at some point in time, someone tried that, okay? All right, so again, people, people are dumb. They don't follow directions. Now, these are really silly examples, but they're true, and hopefully no one here has tried those, or now that I've brought them up, no one's going to try them when they get home. Um, but people have recognized that the, the likelihood that someone has tried it or that someone is going to try it is very high, and so these companies have put these warning labels on there. Now, all funny aside, ultimately those warnings are there for a reason. Right? It's there to, to either protect us or, or warn you, like, hey, this could be dangerous or this is a bad idea. It's, it's telling you and kind of giving you an idea and instruction on what's, what's safe, and that if you do the opposite thing, it's, it's going to hurt. It tells us what's best for us. Well, y'all, God does the same thing. Don't do this. Run away from sin. Obey. Listen. Follow. All those things. Right? And it's not to ruin our, our fun or make us miserable. You know, I had a friend in college who I was having a discussion with her at one point. She, she was not a Christian, and uh, she knew that I was, and we were just kind of talking about things, and it had come up about following Jesus. And, and we were just talking about stuff, and, and she had brought up all the commands that are in the Bible, and she went, you know what, honestly, I'll do the Jesus thing after I'm out of college. Right now, I just want to have fun. And that broke my heart to hear her say that. Um, it, it made me really sad um, to, to have a friend tell me that. Because that's not the point. She didn't get it. Aside from the fact that Christians do have a lot of fun, trust me, God sends us on lots of interesting adventures uh, if we follow him and as we follow him. Now the awesomeness and the fun doesn't necessarily match what we might think is a definition of fun, but because of sin but they are adventures nonetheless. See, guys, sin twists and deceives and, and basically all around messes everything up. So, so God says, comes back right here, 
and says, this is how it's going to work. This is how it needs to work. Please trust me. I made everything. I made the rules, and, and I made these things, and this is how, how life is supposed to work, and, and I made it perfect. So when I tell you that this is how it's supposed to be, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. I know you, you don't. You have to trust me. There really is no other way. And, and so to think that there is, to, to believe that, that what God's saying is dumb or not true, that's a lie. And so God comes back and is like, don't, don't buy this lie. It's bad. It ruins real fun. It ruins the real adventure. And in the long run, you're just going to regret it. But we don't. We decide we know better, and honestly, most of the time, we just make things worse. We wonder why everything went so wrong, and, and that's sin. And part of the problem, guys, is that we don't take it seriously enough. We, we, we obey, you know, oh, we, we kind of obey God until it gets uncomfortable or, or difficult or, or, you know, we don't like that part, so we're just going to throw, throw that out. But see, see, the thing is that... Uh, God looks at those things, and we come back and we'll, we'll say, oh, well, God, I, I did listen to you. Look at all these things I did. And we, but God will come back and say, no, no, no. This is the bubble. This is the boundary. This is the rules. This is the way it's supposed to work, and, and you didn't do that. And you broke something, and it's still broken. And so we like, we like to make excuses. Oh, God, look at how much I obeyed you. And oh, God, when, when we have the instructions right there, we know what God is telling us to do, but we don't follow, but we like excuses, and we like to make reasons up, and we like to try to excuse ourselves away. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at some of those excuses that we like to make, and we're going to kind of think through them and actually ask, am I really following God? Do I really trust him or, or, or not? So we're going to jump right in. Let's look at some of these excuses. So the first one that we're going to look at is this idea of partial obedience, and we're going to see that partial obedience is not obedience at all. And if you have children, you've probably told them that at some point or another. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to look at a couple of different passages tonight, but that's our first, our first one. So as you're turning there, just to give you a little bit of background on what's going on. So Saul is king at this point. Now he's goofed a few times, but God has been gracious and, and he's, still, he's still the ruler. All right, so now God has given saw this command to, to wipe out this group of people called the Amalekites. Now, we don't have time to get into it tonight, but, but you got to understand that, that this command was justified. All right, these guys have basically declared themselves literally enemies of God. God, we hate you, and we are going to live for your destruction. And so God says, okay, well, I'm going to give you some time, right? He's given them some grace and chance and opportunities to repent. They haven't accepted it, and so now judgment is coming. So this command is just... And, and right and fine for God to give. And again, that's all I have the time to get into that tonight, but it is there, and God has made it. So Saul, getting this command from God, raises the army, gets all the Israelite army together, and he goes and he attacks the Amalekites, and they go into battle, and, 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 and he, they wipe almost everything out. We see that he spares the king and, and a lot of the good stuff. And so this is where we're picking up, after he's kind of partially obeyed God's command. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 13, let's look at this. And here's what happens. This is uh, Saul's 
confrontation with God through the prophet Samuel. So Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul says, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel says to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he says to him, Speak. And Samuel says, Though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go to vote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone on the mission on which he sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I devoted the rest of the Amalekites to destruction, but the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of the things, and devoted, and the rest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord ha- as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Saul was told what to do. He had the command. It was totally clear. He even repeats it back to Samuel. So Saul knew what he was supposed to do, and he did most of it. But then, at some point along the way, he decided that, well, I don't want to do all of it, because if I don't, you know, if we spare the king, and we kind of capture him, and that's just kind of how everybody else does it, and it looks better, and it makes me feel better, and if we keep all these good stuff, and we'll burn everything else, but he decided his way was better, and and it made more sense to him. But God, being God, was not about to be fooled And Saul lost the kingdom because of it. God comes and says, "Uh uh-uh, you didn't listen to me, so you're done. No more king. And we know in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David comes on the scene and is anointed as the next king of Israel. See, guys, we do this to God, too. But God, look, I followed you 95% of what you told me to do. You laid this thing on my heart, or I read this in the Bible, or, or I heard this sermon, and, and I really felt convicted to go do something. Well, I, I, I did it 95% of the way. That, that's good enough, right? That's, that's okay. God says, no, that's, that's not okay. That's not what we're supposed to do. Funny story to give you a little example of this. So back when Catherine and I were dating, um, I really worked hard to kind of impress her. Um, I wanted to really badly. And so um, one of the things I did is I decided one night that I was going to make like this dessert for her. You know, we, she, we were going to go out to eat and then I was going to have this nice fancy dessert and, and I was going to give it to her. We actually were going to make the dessert together, you know, as a cool little fun date thing. Um, and it was going to be awesome. So I, I got this recipe for a coconut cream pie that my mom had like perfected over the years. Um, and so she, uh, she'd been working on this and it was like this awesome recipe. And so she sent me everything and I like looked at the recipe and what you were supposed to do. And, and I went out and I bought all the stuff that day. Like I bought the good stuff. Okay. Not like, you know, the off brand thing. Like I bought the brand names and I wanted to make sure this was going to be like the best 
coconut cream pie. It was going to be awesome. And so I was super excited, and I was ready to go. And so Catherine and I, we went out to eat, and then we came back, um, and, uh, and we started getting all the stuff ready to, to make this pie, to put it together. Um, and so we, we got all the supplies out, we set the pot on the stove, and we started prepping all the ingredients, and it was going really well, and we started putting all the stuff in the pot, and started mixing it around, and chopping things, and, and stirring everything in like we were supposed to do. And so I'm stirring and stirring and stirring, and the instruction says it should take about 20 to 25 minutes for everything to kind of, you know, mix together and to become like the, the pie goop that becomes the pie. Okay, I can't think of the name, sorry. Um, and so that's happening, but about 25 minutes come by, and it's, it's not doing it. And so I'm like, man. And so I, so I started stirring a little bit more, and then so I switched from a spoon to a whisk to see, like, maybe it needs to incorporate a little more and get a little air in there. And so I'm going, and I'm going, and I'm going, and I'm going, and nothing is happening. It's still not becoming the, the pie filling that it's supposed to be. And, and so now it's like 45 minutes, and I'm getting mad. Um, and so I don't want to, like, lose my temper over a uh, a pot filled with pie filling, and, and that's ridiculous and silly, but I'm getting frustrated, and Catherine knows I'm getting frustrated, so I was like, here, Catherine, you try this for a little while, and so she tries for a little while, and it still won't do it. Man, I really wanted to make this pie. This was going to be great, and now we're just getting frustrated over this thing, and so she gives up after a while, and so I come back and try it, and we do this, like, we're going on an hour and a half here at this point, okay? And so we're stirring this thing, and it's still not coming together. And I, like, look back over the instructions, and we double-checked everything. And about almost two hours into it, I realized I skipped the first step. I didn't turn on the stove. <laughs> Following the directions 95% of the way for this pie did not equal pie. I didn't follow it. I left out a step. We didn't get a pie. (laughs) Partial obedience (laughs) is not obedience and does not please God. But we use that excuse all the time. One of the other excuses we use is is sometimes, guys... uh, we don't do the partial obedience thing, or, and this kind of goes along with it, but other times we try and make ourselves look good, like on the outside, and we do these things like we make checklists to be like, okay, God, like I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Now, you can love me more, and it's okay if I go do these other things for the rest of my life, or, or you know, the, with the other parts of my life. And, and so we do these checklist things, and so on the outside we look good, but on the inside we're not following God. And so that's, that's another thing that we try and do. So our passage for that, if you flip to the New Testament now, to Matthew chapter 19. We're looking at Matthew chapter 19. All right, Matthew 19. I'm starting in verse 16. A man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would have life, keep the commandments. He says to him, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, uh, shall love your neighbor, as, or excuse me, you shall not bear false witness on your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, so this guy was like so sure of himself. 
He comes to Jesus and goes, Jesus, look at what I've done. Like, look at this. Here's the checklist. I've even written it out. I can hand it to you and show you. I've done this. I've done this. I've done that. I've done that. I'm good here. I'm good there. What else do you want from me, Jesus? Look at how good I am. Look at what I'm doing. I've gotten so many gold stars. I'm respected. People like me. I've checked everything off the list that the Pharisees and religious leaders say I'm supposed to do. I go to church. I tithe. I volunteer. I helped out with Angel Tree and Operation Christmas Child this year. I'm here every single Sunday. I'm nice. I hardly ever honk my horn in traffic, even though I get mad at people. I'm okay, right? But see, Jesus takes his checklists And he gives him one more thing. And he says, and he really, in this case, gives him the thing that he values the most and says, yeah, but you've got to give that thing to me. And in this guy's case, it was money. So he has this checklist, and he's like, look at all these good things I've done. But Jesus comes back and says, no, no. See, you've done these things, but you still haven't given me the thing that is most important to you, the thing that your heart covets, your heart desires more than anything else, and it's not me. And so you have to give that to me. And this guy was not willing to do that. For him, it was money. But what is it for us? What is God asking you to give up for him? Do you really love Jesus? Is God really first? And a lot of times we think, oh, well, yeah, of course he is. But really think about it for a second. What about, I don't know, insert blank here. What is that for you? TV, phones, hobby? working overtime, vacation, NFL. What is it? What is it? And no, it's not just because they're playing right now, but a lot of times we are get obsessed with that. For me, SEC football, like, is that more important, right? Ask, we ask those questions. What is it really? And it's different for different people. And a lot of times, guys, we come to passages like this and we go, oh, well, as long as you're willing to give up that thing, then that's okay. You know, as long as you're willing to do it, that's, that's okay. Then, then you're in the right. And, and yes, you are. You are supposed to be willing to give it up, and maybe God hasn't called you to give that thing up to him yet, but have you considered that he might actually be asking you to do it? Are you really willing? Or, as we're talking about this, are you feeling all squirmy and squishy and inside because... Right now, God's calling your bluff. Jesus calls us to follow after him and to give him everything that we are. By the way, I think this is one of the most shocking passages in, in all of Scripture. Scary when you really think about it. Because the rich young ruler, he, he goes away sad, right? Do you ever think about what Jesus did? How he responded? Just think about it for a second. I never really thought about it until recently. But Christ, he doesn't chase him down. He doesn't rush after him. He doesn't beg him, no, no, don't go away. You've almost got it. You're so close. Don't leave yet. Please come back. Listen to me. Do this thing. It's in... He doesn't do that. Jesus, Jesus lets him go. He lets him walk away sad. He lets him go. Jesus simply shares the truth, and when the man leaves because he doesn't like it and isn't willing to accept it, Jesus watches him go and literally responds with, okay. And then he turns around and uses it as a lesson for the disciples. But 
he responds with, okay. Now, we know, God that did, we know that God does not want anyone to die without him. God loved the world. John 3.16 tells us that. But he's not going to force us. He gave us free will. He gave us the ability to choose. Is, is the Christian life a checklist for you? Or are you doing things to make you know, are you doing things to make God like you more? Or is God your priority? Are you obeying him because you love him because of what he's done for us? So partial obedience is not obedience. And obedience is about our love for God, not about this checklist so that we can control God or say, God, look how good and perfect and pure I am. And then finally, the other excuse that we like to make is, uh, well, God, I know it was wrong, but, I, you know, my heart was in the right place. Flip to Second Samuel, back to the Old Testament. I know it was wrong, but I had a good attitude about it. I know it was wrong, but, you know, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, come on. Right? We, we try and come up with all these different little excuses. Like, I mean, it wasn't that bad. Right? We, we kind of tear our sin. Right? Second Samuel, chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. So David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him for Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio was before the ark. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place became, or that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. God was afraid of the Lord that day, or excuse me, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of God come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. All right, so Uzzah, he dies because he went to study the ark of God, and God kills him. It seems really odd, right? Doesn't seem super fair. If, uh, if the passage in uh, Matthew is one of like, the scariest passages in Scripture, this is one of the most bizarre, honestly, if we really think about it. Or, or if you kind of read it on the surface level, you go, what, what is God doing? This is weird. Uzzah was protecting the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, this is the Ark of the Covenant. He didn't want it to fall in the mud or on the path or off the cart. Like, he was trying to stop it. Now, sure, God said don't touch it, but he was trying to stop it from something worse happening. I mean, come on. It wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal, right? At worst, we're looking at, you know, he did the wrong thing for the right reason. You know, that was, that was overkill, God. Come on. I mean, you know, no pun intended. Is it, though? 
Now, for one thing, God did say not, don't touch it. We, we see this, um, excuse me, wrong one, in Numbers. Right? This is the instructions about moving the ark and the other um, pieces of the tabernacle and temple. After the sons of, of uh, Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. All right, so we have this command, right? And so we see this, right? Numbers 4, it talks about how to transport not only the ark, but all the other stuff in the temple. And if you, you look at the rest of that, this is just a little piece of it, but it says you, like, have to cover all the holy items and you carry them on poles. How many of those things did they do in the passage in 2 Samuel? Zero. None. They weren't covered. It wasn't on a pole. It was on a new cart. Right? They weren't doing any of those things. Think about that just for a second. You don't touch these things or you die. This is how you're supposed to do things. It's only by the grace and mercy of God that Uzzah wasn't the only one who was killed in that incident. Think about that for a second. Not only that, they should have all been dead long before that oxen ever stumbled and Uzzah tried to touch the ark. God does not take sin lightly, y'all. We do. See, we don't want sin to be so yucky because then that means we're going to feel yucky if we have to confront the fact that we sin. And we don't like that. But guess what, y'all? We are yucky. We are, we are gross and perverted and broken and messed up and yucky. That's what makes sin, sin. So we make all these excuses, this, this partial obedience, this, this, this checklist or, or, you know, this thing to kind of almost control God. Or, or we come back and say, well, God, it wasn't that big of a deal. Come on. But it's still sin. We're still not obeying and listening. It still separates us from God. And that's still the problem. It means we're yucky. And if it weren't for Jesus, we would have absolutely no hope. We are just as guilty as Saul, the rich young ruler, Uzzah, and all those people that were helping David move the ark. Sin is so yucky and it's so sinful. But guys, that's what makes grace so gracious. Because when we really think about it, we go, well, then what hope do we have? None apart from God. We have his grace. That's what makes sin so gracious. That's the good news that we have. See, we don't, we don't have to just leave it there and be like, ah, there's no hope. There's nothing we can do. It's, right? Even the excuses are not good. And yet God comes back and goes, yes, but grace. Romans 7. Paul makes it pretty... Uh, Paul, Paul words it pretty well. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the next verse, he says, thanks be to God because of Jesus Christ. A couple chapters previous in Romans 5, 
we see that he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then a little bit later in Ephesians, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. This is grace. There is nothing we can do. And even when we try, we see that we just make it worse. But God. But God. Because of his grace for us. So I gave you a little picture of partial obedience with a story about food. Now I'm going to give you a picture of grace with a story about food. All right, this one's not a real story, but it's still a good story about food. So God's grace is like chocolate cake. Here's where the chocolate cake comes in. All right, so everybody in this room, stick with me. Let's pretend you're nine years old again. I know, I know that's hard for some of you in the room, but just stick with me. Come on, just try, all right? Pretend you're nine years old again. All right, so your mom has told you, go outside and play. Like, just get out of the house, go outside and play. I'm going to, like, deep clean the room, like the carpets, the floors, the walls, everything possible. It's just, it's time to deep clean this house. It needs it. Get out. Go and play. And when you come back in, please do not track your muddy, dirty, stinky, sweaty self and clothes and shoes all across my nicely new cleaned house. Please do not do this thing. All right, so you go outside and you play and, and man, you just have so much fun. You're, you're running, and you're skipping, you're jumping in puddles. I mean, you are having as much fun as a nine-year-old could possibly have outside. I mean, all of it. You've done everything. You've played for hours, and you have literally worn yourself out. All right, so now it's time to go back in. It's, the sun's going down. It's getting late, and you're tired, and, and, you know, it's time to go home. So you go back home, and you decide, as you get close to the door, well, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that dirty, and I'm really tired, and it takes all the extra effort to pull off the shoes, and I mean, I'm just going to go straight to my room, and mom's not going to care too much. I mean, come on. So you totally disregard what she said, and you walk into the house through the room. You're at your bedroom door, and you, your hand is on the knob, and you're turning the knob, and suddenly you hear this scream from the other room. And it's not like a, I'm scared scream. It is a, like, I'm going to kill you scream. And somewhere amidst the scream, you hear your name. All right? You know that your mom has found the mess you left. And you turn around and look, and you see the footprints of your muddy shoes from the door all the way across your carpet and in your kitchen and all the way to your bedroom door. So there's no getting around it. Like, it is you. You are guilty. You have been caught red-handed. You cannot blame it on the dog or your sibling. It is clearly you. And so now your mom has seen this mess, and she's coming. All right, so she comes, and, uh, you know, like, you, you know you're dead. You, you turn around, you see her. She is red-faced. And, and is like just going at you. I mean, you know it's over. You, meet, you know you've had it. You are so dead. In fact, you know that if there is some way for her to kill you, bring you back to life, and kill you again, that's the method of punishment she is going to choose. She is that mad, okay? So like just picture this. You know it's coming, all right? Like that time you got mad at your sister and punched her in the face, the punishment you got from that is going to look like they gave you candy compared to what's coming, 
right? So you know this is going to be bad. So your mom gets in your face, tells you, go inside your room, sit down, do not move. I will be back in a few minutes. Now, you're terrified, so you are not going to deviate from those commands in any way, shape, or form. You go into your room, you sit down, and you sit there quietly. Do not move. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You sit there and wait, and you hear some noises out in the rest of the house. And you know that all those noises probably mean nothing good for you. You're kind of scared about those noises. You're pretty sure some of there's somewhere in there there are the sounds of knives being sharpened. And so finally, after two gut-wrenching hours, your mom comes in and she's calm. And we're talking like eerily calm, like psychotically calm before the crazy person strikes in the horror movies, calm. And she comes and she sits down next to you on the bed and she just kind of looks at you and you squeeze your eyes tight because you know something's coming and you've got tears coming down your face and you barely squeak out, Mom, I'm so sorry, please, whatever it is, I'm really sorry, please don't do this. And you're super panicked and tears are just rolling down your eyes and you know the end has come. But then your mom gives you a hug. She tells you, I've cleaned up the mess. There's not going to be any punishment tonight. Um, go change, take a shower, get, get cleaned up. Don't worry about it. Guys, that's, that's mercy. You know you deserved whatever your mom had cooked up for you, but you got a hug instead. You didn't get the punishment. That's, that's mercy. But see, that's not all. So you're done showering, and you finally have put your dirty stuff where it belongs, and you go out to the kitchen, because that's where your mom is, and you sit down at the table, and uh, she sets a, a plate in front of you. And then you see those knives you heard, and you went, okay, great. She just wanted me to be clean before I spray blood everywhere so that she knows that she actually got me, and it's not just mud. But guys, she doesn't do that. She, uh, she goes over to the counter and cuts a piece of chocolate cake, like just out of the oven, freshly iced, smelling up the entire kitchen. This is awesome, sweet, just incredible smell of chocolate cake. And she cuts the very first piece, and she puts it on a plate, and she walks over to you and says, look, I, I love you. You're not perfect. You messed up, yeah. But you apologized, and not only is there not going to be a punishment, because I love you, and for no other reason that I love you. Here you go. Guys, that's grace. We are called to obey we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. But we're sinners, so we can't. So Jesus comes, and he dies on the cross, and he pays the punishment for our sins so that we don't have to take that. And then he offers that salvation to us as a free gift that we do not deserve in any way, shape, or form, and says, here you go. 
You just have to trust me and take it. You take this and I will fix everything. Your relationship with God will be restored. Everything will be forgiven. He literally offers us a piece of chocolate cake. So if you're not a believer in this room, just as a reminder, the checklist won't save you. Having more good things than bad things in your life, that's not, that's not going to do it. Negotiating, it's not going to save you. Saying, oh, well, my sins aren't as bad as so, and that's not going to do it either. Only Jesus can save you. As Christians in this room, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are new creations. The Bible makes that very clear in 2 Corinthians. Why do we keep living like we're not? No, no, we're not going to do things perfectly because God is still working in us. That's a process. And there are still consequences for when we slip up. That's not what I'm saying. Because we still struggle with partial obedience and and checklists and trying to look good on the outside and not really following God with all of our heart and trying to make excuses for our sin. And we still struggle with that. But God is still good and gracious and working in us. God still loves us. God wants to teach us. God wants to use us to pass that good news on to others. So the next time you enjoy a piece of chocolate cake or whatever dessert of choice you enjoy, for you non-cake lovers out there, please remember we are called to follow God with everything that we are. But when we mess up, there's still grace. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for grace. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But you still give it to us. Lord, help us to remember that, to never forget that. Help us to share that good news with others. Give us courage as we go about the rest of our day. Help us to live for you. Help us to have our hearts in the right place. And when we don't do it, thank you for the mercy and the grace that allows us to continue on. Father, we give the rest of this week to you. We just ask that you continue to work in and through us. Thank you again for the challenge of your word, but also for the reminder that you love us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.